Coming up, it's a Chuck Klosterman summer. It's next. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is stressful enough just with the airport situation. No matter where you're going, it's always packed. You're always worried the weather might be bad. Is my plane going to get delayed? You just want the actual place you're staying at to be a lights out experience. So if you've booked a vacation rental and you found yourself stuck making small talk with the host, or you've arrived to find out it doesn't look anything like the pictures, you know, that's, that's the worst. You could avoid the awkwardness with Verbo. Verbo has helped travelers find great private vacation rentals for nearly 30 years. You heard me correctly. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your private vacation rental in the Verbo app. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we are doing courtroom month on the rewatchables. We did A Time to Kill on Monday. Next Monday, my cousin Vinny, that's happening. And we're going to have three more after that, including a live show that's going to be on July 27th in Los Angeles. Um, time and details will be given out on the rewatchables um, probably next week and on my Twitter feed as well and on the rewatchables Twitter feed. So keep your eye out for that. July 27th at night, Los Angeles. There you go. Hey, this is my last podcast for a couple of weeks. Um, if you remember last year, I took five weeks off and it really helped me from doing this podcast. Um, I was able to refuel my batteries. I was able to throw myself into football prep season. And just in general, it was great because we're going, you know, it goes from basically late August all the way through beginning of July with uh, football and, and basketball. This really helped me last year. I'm doing it again. I am coming back for one podcast on Sunday, August 6th. I'm going to do a two-parter that day. And other than that, you will not see me again on this feed until the August 20th Sunday podcast. I think it's August 20th. So that is what is happening. Um, thanks for your support. Thanks for your understanding. Thanks for listening. I appreciate the audience. Um, that we built on this pod. Uh, all the nice things people have said, it's great to be part of your life and I'm going to disappear from it for a little while. And then I'm going to come back and it's going to be great and you're not going to miss me. So there you go. That is what's happening. Also, we have a bunch of awesome Ringer podcasts that you can listen to, right? We, You know all of them, but if you want to get into football season, we have a great fantasy football podcast. We have Ringer NFL show. We're Solo Talks, uh, football on his pod. If you want summer basketball, like let's say Dame gets traded while I'm away, you can listen to the Ringer NBA show. You can listen to Mismatch. You can listen to uh, Rosillo's podcast. You can listen to Logan and Raj on Ringer NBA show for the real ones. Like whatever you want, we have it. We have you covered. We have you covered with pop culture. We have the big picture and we have the watch and we have Prestige TV. We're going to have a bunch of stuff. Rewatchables, I'm going to stay on. 
we banked a few of the pods and um, I think I might do two more, even though I'm supposed to be on vacation. Don't tell my wife. But that's it. I will see you back on this feed on August 6th and I will see you for good. We'll be back on a normal schedule on August 20th. So there you go. Coming up, the man, the myth, Chuck Klosterman is next. And we talk about a whole bunch of stuff. And if you don't think it gets weird, you don't know us well enough. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, it's been a while. Our guy Chuck Klosterman is here, a BS Report Hall of Famer once upon a time. And then we changed podcasts and get Bill Simmons podcast. Still a Hall of Famer. You got to bring your Hall of Fame credentials over. Everyone's wanting to get. They can't kick me out of the Hall of Fame. I'm like OJ. I'm just in there regardless of what I do. <laughs> You're in no matter what happens. Great. Uh, every once in a while, we like to check in and see what's catching your fancy. This is a particularly interesting time to check in with you because you live in the Portland area. I do. And, and they're in. Uh, it feels like it's going to be in terminal trade negotiations with Dame Lillard. Give us the mood of the city with this trade request. Well, I often, as I always have to to preface this, I, I don't really have a great pulse of the city. I'm not too involved with the city, uh, but I, I'm still here, so I get a sense of what's happening. You know, he, I, I just think it's kind of interesting. I mean, like, for so long, he has been just beloved, maybe overloved, for this mm. idea of loyalty, that he was just the most loyal guy. And, and when I may overlove, the reason I say that is because I always think it's a little strange when someone gets that much credit just for not demanding to be traded. You know, it's like he's beloved for this, you know, and it's good. He's always really been like, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, he's the most popular athlete in town, you know, by many magnitudes. Of course, there's only really one sport here. Um, I think that there is a, uh, sort of a an ongoing detachment from being too emotional about this. Like, I, it doesn't seem like people are losing their minds. Obviously, as you know, as you move to the West, sports fandom always kind of decreases. Like, it's not like this is happening on the East Coast or even in the Midwest. So people seem to have an understanding that, oh, well, I guess this is going to happen now. Um, like, I don't think when he comes back, assuming he's traded, uh, I don't think he'll get booed in Portland. Like, I don't think that will happen. Um, Me neither. What I, I the the thing that is just kind of you know uh, just noteworthy to me is that like you know he's gotten all this credit uh, you know for being loyal and somehow it's like nice guys kind of finish last. It looks like he's going to be the first of these major superstars to make a demand and not get exactly what he wants, which is you know everybody else seems to. It's like everybody else like Kyrie or whoever you want to mention. It's like you know Durant. That these guys, they want things and then it just kind of happens. And it doesn't seem like it's going to happen for him in the way that he intends. I mean, unless it, the deal with Miami does end up coming through. But I, I, it, it seems odd to me that, that what the Heat are offering is what Portland would get back for this. Right. It's, it feels like he's going to end up in Miami. It's just going to take so much longer than everyone expected. And I don't. Russell and I talked about this on Sunday, whether Portland would just have the balls to say, fuck it, we've traded you for Carl Towns. Here's the number of the Minnesota GM and give him a call. I don't know if they're going to play it that way. 
Um, it's going to be, it will hang over the whole summer. At some point, he'll do an interview or whatever. And, you know, I talked to Stephen A a little bit about this. It's really interesting from where we came from growing up as sports fans to where we are now, where, you know, the old days where you would Sports Illustrated would release the salaries of all the players and people would be like, oh my God, they would have that salary issue. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty anti-player all the way through the uh, 90s and really through the decision. And now it's flipped and most of the people in my life are like, they should do the right thing. They should trade in Miami. So I wonder if that's just, if that sentiment is just going to kind of push them toward actually doing that. I think that sentiment has moved through kind of all of sports. You know, I would say prior to the, like the 94 baseball strike, it was very rare when there would be a labor dispute that the average fan would side with the players. They always yeah. sided with ownership. Um, and th- there, there was almost this really in some ways, I guess, unfair belief that like players should just be happy to do this. Like they should just like, like it, they're, they're living their dream. Of course, the owner is a businessman. He's going to do what a businessman does, but that has kind of changed now. Now it, it seems as though, uh, any kind of labor dispute, especially like the sports writing community tends to side with the players. And I sense this with Lillard that there's this, I like, I heard someone on the radio saying like, like the Blazers have broken the code by not doing this. Like the code is that when a superstar has to be traded after many years, you just have to do it because you owe him that. And I, I, I don't, I, I can't really say that that's uh, some kind of terrible concept, but it does, it's weird for sure. You know? Yeah. And it also probably makes it easier that they have his replacement just kind of in the chamber, ready to be fired. Scoot Henderson, where he's going to leave. And they immediately, the second wife immediately comes in with like the new marriage. She's younger, you know, little, little pizzazz to it. And it'll be fun right away. Whereas like we've had other guys get traded and it was pretty bleak. Like when Toronto traded Vince Carter, I was like, all right, what do we do now? You know, Kevin Garnett, Minnesota is like, ah, I hope Al Jefferson's good. The scoot thing I think is going to solve a lot of this. So that that's why I feel like they'll probably end up doing the Miami thing. I don't would, think anyone else is going to step up. Would you have any interest in seeing both of them on the floor at the same time? Obviously, it's a very small backcourt, but the game is so different now. I I, I can't necessarily say it wouldn't work. I personally would not be against it. It's it's ridiculous. You're not going to win a title that way. But if if the choice was just bring Dame back and bank on the fact that he loves basketball and throw him out there with Scoot and see what happens. Well, plus they get another guy who's a good shooter. It's a, you know, it's like Simons. I, yeah, yeah. You know, who he's really up and down. But when he plays well, when he's shooting well, it's he's he's almost it's almost like having another Lillard on the. F- floor because his range is so great and I, I it just it doesn't seem impossible to me now that you could put two guys who are six two and six one uh you know on the floor together and not have it be a disaster i mean that seems we, very possible we yeah. saw okc do this where they had that weird chris paul season and they had dennis schroeder and they had uh shay gilgis alexander and they're like ah fuck it and they just played all three of them at the same time and they were really hard to play they made the playoffs got to a game seven in round one it was unconventional so, yeah, I do think that's a good point. They don't necessarily have to trade them. And they might look at this and just go, you know what? We're better off waiting until December, January. The interesting part that I don't think I've talked about on my pod is Miami's just on hold with this whole thing where 
they lost Max Struess. They lost Gabe Vincent. They made the finals last year. They're on a little bit of a time clock with Jimmy because he's 33. Um, and they didn't really add anybody else. And kind of everything's hinging on this Dame thing. And if it doesn't happen, that team might actually suck next year. Like they sucked as a regular season team last year. They barely made the playoffs. They were a playing team. And now they're going to be worse because they're going to be missing two guys. So I don't, I don't remember a situation like this before where the other team is on hold. But if for some reason it doesn't happen, it's actually like a disaster for them. So, well, okay. Tell me this when, you know, I, I've seen so many people mentioning and then kind of complaining about this idea of heat culture. Do you believe heat culture is real? Is that something that is that, that, that it's, is it just something people say, or is there a reality to that concept? I believe there's something there. I, okay. and, and I think key culture is really the type of personalities and players that they look for. Well, and that, this yes. is like a 20 year thing. Now it's a little like the Ravens had this for a little while. They just looked, the Steelers are another team that I think they just look for certain types of guys, certain I mean, character traits that they over and over again drift to. So, I mean, they're playing a lot of the playoffs with three undrafted guys starting. That doesn't happen much in football where there's right. 22 positions, right? So if you're, you know, uh, Spolestra, um, and, oh, and if you're Pat Riley and you're kind of looking at this team, you know, I think that you have to say to yourself, it's like, well, we're doing something right here though. It's like, we seem to have a sense of talent, uh, a judge of talent and of sort of what people bring to the table, uh, that is just superior to these other franchises. So do we need to do what is expected of us, which is try to just keep adding superstars. Maybe it's not. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe they see other ways of, uh, of, uh, of doing this. I mean, uh, like, I, I think, you know, uh, everybody, you know, like, like, it's like, I mean, me included, like love Spo now. He just seems like the best coach. Uh, I have a trivia question for you. Yeah. Prior to becoming a coach, what was the most interesting thing about his life? Um, it's the Philippines, right? Nope. Oh, well, I what mean, I guess it? this is this is subjective, but it's yeah. like he was on the floor, the closest guy to Hank Gathers when he died. <laughs> really? I'm almost certain of this. If I get this wrong, check it. But I, I, uh, I, I know I, it is. I know I'm sure I'm right about this. Yeah, he was playing against uh, Loyola Marymount and was like seven oh feet God. away from him when he went. To, yeah. Um. Uh. He also he went to a high school. It's like five minutes from me, which is fine. Uh, very interesting. Makes me want to send my kids there because he seems to be a real together dude. <laughs> I spent after the 2013 finals because I and we had met him a couple of times because I was working for ESPN that year. And we kind of ran into each other at the ESPYs and just talked for, I don't know, maybe it was 10 minutes about how crazy the Ray Allen shot was. And the way he talked about it was really interesting. Like he was just, he's one of those guys that I just think he can connect with whoever he's talking to. And he was just explaining like, I thought it was over. I thought we were done. And then he hit that first three and we get the foul and the crowd gets into it. And it was just like, oh my God, like, oh, you know, but the way he was talking about it, I was just like, wow, this guy could have probably done all kinds of things. Like he yeah, didn't necessarily I, have to be a coach. He could have been a broadcaster. He could have done whatever. I think he's just a legitimately smart guy. And, yeah. and when I say that, I don't mean like we got to put him down and give him an IQ test. I think that he's probably pretty intellectually intelligent, but also just seems to have a good sense of what is real and what is not real. Like he, he, uh, a friend of mine mentioned this during the playoffs about Jimmy Butler. It was like, 
So Jimmy Butler just seems to understand how the NBA really works Mm. better than other players. Like he has an understanding of actually what is the amount you need to expend yourself in the regular season to be competitive, but still have another gear in the playoffs. Uh, how is the game going to be officiated in the playoffs? Uh, how are how is my opponent going to react if they're ahead in the series or down in the series? Like he, like Spo, seems to have just like a, a good sense of what's really happening. And uh, it's it, like it was just impossible not to root for that team during the NBA this year. Like, it's like, it, it was just, it really became difficult to not want them to win considering how outmanned that they would have seemed if it was a video game or like a Stratomatic basketball game or something. Right, right. Yeah. Well, with Butler, he has a really rare trait where he seems, and I've, and I've felt it go into games that he's been in where he really seems to understand the rhythm of how a game is going. Yes. And when to kind of snap his fingers and go for four minutes versus when to lay back. And also he kind of understands when things are slipping away and when you can go for the kill and grab somebody by the neck. Like even that game seven I went to, Tatum got hurt and there was just this moment for Miami and I think they could feel it like, oh shit, we can go up by 15 right now. We can like start throwing haymakers. And he was like all out going, but I've watched other games where he kind of lays low, lays low, lays low, and then he goes for it. It's, he's probably the worst good player who's ever had that quality that I can think of. And I, and I don't mean that as an insult, but I'm saying like, that's usually a quality that like LeBron has, you know, Michael Jordan and people like that. He's probably the least equipped skill wise to have that skill, but he has it. Well, you know, yeah, like I, you know, you're often you're ranking these guys, you know, top five, top fifteen, whatever. You know, Jimmy Butler is not one of I would say the you know fifteen or twenty five best players in the league. But you know what I would want him in? I would want him in a game played outside by ones. Like if you're playing on concrete (laughs) and it's you're playing to eleven by ones, you got to win by two. There's no threes. No people refs. are calling their own fouls, uh, but people are, but, but, you know, it's, I just, he seemed like he would be great in that setting. You know, it's like, like That's where, where, where it's just kind of like when you, when you're playing the, in some ways, like the rawest, purest form of basketball. Yeah. Uh, you know, he does seem just perfectly suited for that. I, Duran is a sneaky candidate for that too. Because he, he just has the ability to score whenever he wants in any situation against anyone who's guarding him. You know? But that's not sneaky, though. Everybody take him. Like if yeah, we had, yeah, I know. If, we, if, we had, if you and me were picking guys, or me and whoever were picking guys, it's like Durant's going to be an early pick no matter what the situation is. I don't know if Jimmy Butler would be. You know, I, you know, I, uh, but you'd be a, bummed out when the other team took him. You're like, oh shit, they got Jimmy. I should take him. No, I, I would take him. I would take him too yeah. early. You know, yeah. Yeah, he he's officially had, I think, one of the weirdest careers in the history of the league. There's no question. I mean, I, I think he, I was redoing my uh, my pyramid. I had to put him in. I mean, he's, you know, he's bulldozed his way to two finals. That's pretty rare. Um, He's, I think, from in the era when we get like 50 years from now, they're going to be like, what the hell is going on with this? And he'll probably get discounted for some of the stats and some of the missed games. But for everybody who was there, it was like, this was a guy, you know, for whatever reason, he felt like he was every bit as good as anyone he was playing against, no matter who it was. Well, I, yeah, I, I is a great skill. 
I suspect in five or 10 years, if you're still doing this, you will probably remove him from the pyramid. Because some of, <laughs> I'll talk well, myself out of it. Well, because some of the stuff about him, we will we'll kind, we'll kind of forget. You know, yeah. it's like some things you have to, you have to, it, it only really exists in the present. And when you remember them later, it's like you start looking at the numbers, you're going to look at other guys, guys who haven't, aren't even in the league yet, guys we don't even know about. And it's like, uh, uh, it's, suddenly it's like he's going to be gone and we're going to kind of forget that this happened. I mean, I feel like this sort of happened with Andrew Tony. Uh, you know, oh, that, God, that, yeah. Yeah. So that he's like a kind of a forgotten guy. Jamal Wiltz to a degree is like this, where these guys who, uh, because their numbers aren't astounding, um, we have sort of lost touch with what they were actually doing and how much they changed the game, even when they were having, you know, a, a pretty regular stat line, you know, a, a 24 point game with six assists or whatever. But it was they changed the game more than that based on these sort of intangible things that don't translate over time. My number one guy for this is Mark Aguirre. Mm. Mark Aguirre was the number one pick in the 1981 draft. And Isaiah, he went one spot over Isaiah. He grew up with Isaiah. Mark Aguirre, Isaiah Thomas, and Eddie Johnson, the, the longtime shooter who's now the Phoenix Suns guy, who's a great guy. They all grew up together in Chicago. Doc Rivers was like a year later than them. There was this like whole, Terry Cummings was in there, this whole Chicago scene. And you look at Aguirre's stats, he was excellent for the entire 80s. Like he was like 25 to 30 points a game year after year. He was considered one of the best scorers in the league. Dallas had some runs. They had some bad luck with Roy Tarpley. And, mm. you know, they're in the same conference as the Lakers. Gets traded to Detroit, reinvents himself as kind of this, you know, role player slash play, starts playing better defense, stuff like that. And now he's never mentioned. But he's like, when you talk about I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but there's, you know, he's he's sniffing around some guys who have made the Hall of Fame. He was that yeah. good. Uh, so Mark Agu I, I would have thought Mark Aguirre is in the Hall of Fame. No, he's not. Uh, is Adrian Dantley in the Hall of Fame? He must be, right? I think Adrian Dantley is in the Hall of Fame. But yeah, they um, got traded for each other. But it is funny because I, I did a thing on my pod last week about, um, about the greatest blazer ever and how everyone was just saying it was damn. I was like, it's, 100% Bill Walton. And if you're saying greatest career ever, it's Clyde Drexler. And we always talk about legacy, legacy, legacy. And Clyde Drexler is a good example of like, what's his legacy that people forgot he was the best blazer? You know? So like, do we make too much of legacy when people can't even remember legacies 10 years later? Uh, that's a, a, boy, I, I cause, cause if you ask me who the greatest blazer of all time is, I probably would say Lillard now. It's interesting that you think it's so really? obviously. Well, yeah, because, you know, I, I now think of Drexler as kind of having two careers, you know, one with Portland and one with Houston. And certainly at the peak, yes, Walton was the best. But that career was so short, it doesn't seem like he can be in this conversation unless we're, well, you know. We want him a title. Like, if you have one yeah, title yeah. in your franchise history, the greatest blazer has to be the guy that brought the title. But Drexler was like, he was the second best player in the league in 1992. Dame's never done that. Brought him to two finals. Dame's never won a single conference finals game. You know, so I, I think, I think Lillard's title is, I think he was the most popular Blazer ever. I think that's what he was. I think he was the most beloved, popular Blazer they've ever had. And uh, in the running for best, but wasn't the best. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I guess, you know, it, uh, the end of this might, you know, might be telling. 
like how we remember this might be telling. If he ends up coming back to the Blazers and plays very well this year, I think then that the it, it, it's going to almost move him like one step up on that ladder. If it's a really bad sort of ending, if things get worse, then people may sort of long for Clyde Drexler. I don't know. That's I. Uh, that's an interesting question. I guess I. I. You, I mean, the the argument for Drexler being the best one, I guess, makes sense. I mean, the thing about Walton though, that is a that's a real short window, Bill. Though it really is like very small. I get it, but he was the best player in the world for 18 months. And I think, I don't know what how long this list is, but it's probably 12 people total who can say so, that. So is Kawhi the best Raptor of all time? Well, he was there one year. Yeah. How, how many years was Walton healthy? One and a half probably, years. Probably, eh, off and on, probably five. I don't think so, Bill. You know what? Kawhi probably, think, Kawhi probably is the best Raptor ever. He played there one year yeah. and he left and they won the title and everyone said he's the new best player in the league. I think I might give it to him. Yeah. Well, okay. Who I is mean, he competing by, by, against? Well, by your argument, he has to be. But by, by the who, argument, who would be your choice for best Raptor well, ever? So uh, don't say Vince Carter. Well, that's who I was going to say. No, that's ridiculous. Um, um, it's probably. I mean, it's probably Kyle Lowry if you're going yeah. career. There's another one. Sure. Okay. Chris Bosh wasn't there quite long enough. So Mark Aguirre averaged 29.5 points a game in 1984 from 83 through 88. That's a six-year run. He was 25.5 points a game. Never. There's never been a Mark Aguirre conversation. Only made three All-Star games. And then, yeah, that's it. Never, did he get all NBA? Yeah. Eh? No, never got all well, NBA. I, I can't, you know, he he had a great period during the 80s, but he was often, I remember him often being criticized when he was. Oh, yeah. You know, he kind of, he, in a way, seemed like he was one of like the early, not one of the early, I guess, one of the mid-period prototypes of like bad team, big score. Bad chemistry. Yeah. So I mean, I was. I, I yeah. thought. I thought. I thought the Pistons were making a mistake by trading Danley, but it turns out they were right. Yeah. Yeah, that was my. Well, they well. they really should have won the last year Dantley was there, though. That really was just just a bunch of stuff went wrong that would never happen if you played that series a hundred times. It wouldn't. You know that what happened would happen once. Yeah. Yeah, that's the second closest anyone's come to winning a title without winning a title. That '88 team. Like I still don't know how they lost to the Lakers. Well, he had the two guys got a concussion. Isaiah sprains his ankle yeah. and the word. Well, that was yeah. 87. Yeah, yeah, they had a whole bunch of stuff. All right, yeah. let's take a break. We have so much more stuff to cover here. All right, you love the bear like so many of us did. I'm still mad that they dropped everything all at once and didn't just dole, dole it out over four weeks so we could have gotten a month of content and dialogue about it. I don't like when these shows just dump all the episodes. When it's a half hour show, I like them dumped. When, you, know, like, I, I, you want I, everything all at once. When, it, when it's that short. And also that show doesn't sort of use the regular time parameters. It'll be like, oh, this episode's 22 minutes because it's really intense. This one's going to be an hour, though. Oh, this one's 44. It's like it's, you never know how long their episodes are going to be. I wish they had dropped the first five, waited a week, dropped six and seven, waited a week, and then done eight, nine, and ten and finished it off that way. You said uh, you thought it addressed an issue rarely seen on TV. What was the issue? Well, what, what, 
you know, I think it is very interesting that they have sort of worked on this idea of a main character who loves something and his love does not make him happy. Because so often in, you know, in fiction, this idea is that if someone finds the thing that they love and then they pursue the thing that they love, uh, that, that, that is where they kind of become self-actualized. And I like the fact that like, a the thing that he understands he loves the most in the world makes him miserable. And then now there's going to be a third season of this, obviously, and maybe they're not going to go any further into that direction. But like in that last episode of the season, he's kind of accepting that's like, I'm just never going to be happy. That's how I am. Because, and, and if I was the kind of person who could be made happy by cooking, I wouldn't be the chef that I am. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I don't often like, watch television shows and really like relate to characters. But in some ways I really found myself relating to this guy. Um, just, you know, his, the, the, the like his, his cousin is saying to him, like, wait, if this doesn't fucking give you joy, what does? And he's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I guess, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, I thought that was just, uh, I, I was really into that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause most people, when they have success or they're accomplishing things that they always dreamed of doing, there's kind of a emptiness to it. I would include myself. Yeah. But where you're like, man, I thought this would, I thought this would be better. Well, it's like, always, it's the illusion of having a goal that is supposed to satisfy how you feel. I mean, it just does not how the world works, you know? Well, yeah. what's, what's that old phrase of the journey is, who, what was that quote? There's been a bunch of different quotes about this. The journey is better than well, the it's end. Not, well, yeah, I mean, it's not the destination. It's the journey. There's many. Yeah, yeah. Sort of All kinds of things like that. that. Well, we see that happen with sports teams when they win the title. Pat Riley always did the disease of more about it. But just in general, like you can get everybody to, to you know, somebody like Michael Porter on Denver. Where he's like, you know what? We have a chance to win the title. I'm going to give up something here. But is he going to be like that next year? Is he is is it going to be like, hey, man, it's Michael Porter time. Time for me to get more shots. I need to show that I, or is it going to be like, you know what? I'm super happy in this situation. I hit the jackpot with this Jokic guy. I can't, I, I have the best teammate in the league and I'm just going to ride this out for the eight, next eight years and this will make me super happy. Or is it going to go, you know what would be better if I was the best player on the team and then he goes yeah. a different direction. I mean, like, like satisfaction or the idea of being satisfied uh, just does not merge well with the hyper talented. Like, you know, I watched that Wham! documentary and yeah. um, I thought one great part in that, uh, and I'm so glad they included this. It's like we have this whole story of of George Michael sort of becoming friends with a guy who wants to be in a band. And, and then it turns out that George Michael is the guy who can sing and kind of write the songs and produce it. He does, you know, they have this amazing success. They're going to, he's going to have a solo career. The guy he's with originally is like really cool about it. He's like, I knew he was going to go solo. But he makes this Christmas song and it happens to come out at the same time as We Are the World is happening. And like, you know, and, and he said like, well, you know, it's, it was great that we were kind of helping these people in Africa, but I knew that this, or I'm actually, I suppose it wasn't, we are the world it was probably the British one that do they know it's Christmas. I can't recall right, yeah. which we are. Right. It was just, so it was like the Bob Geldof one. And yeah. you know, he's like, so it's like, he knows that this song 
this charity song is obviously going to go to number one. And even though he's part of that, too, and he knows how great it is, he just can't kind of get over the fact that he's like, I wrote this amazing Christmas song. It should be number one. You know, and that's like a great example of what we're talking about, in a sense. It's like so uh, in some ways he got twice what he had hoped for. He was on two songs that Christmas that mattered, but one is his and one is not. And it's just that bothers him more than the success of both together. I I'm so fascinated with partnerships when the one guy ascends over the other guy, because this even happened in wrestling where Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty were this great tag team. And then Shawn Michaels was just obviously the one that it should become a solo star. And he super kicked. Marty Jannetty through the barbershop window and had a solo career and became a huge star. We see this in music and in wrestling and sometimes in media too. Like we, we don't know how the Jesus and Merrill thing is going to play out yet, but one of those guys will ascend higher than the other guy. Key and Peel, it seems like those guys are cool with each other, but Peel, that they split up, Peel becomes this incredible director, right? So if you're just going to be like zero sum game, who won after the breakup? You would say Peel, but I think both of them are still cool and Key does good things. But just in general, it feels like a zero-sum game where somebody has to win. Well, I, I mean, in the Wham! example, that really isn't the case. One guy sends over the other guy, but the other guy completely understands why. I think yeah. it's tough is when you have two people and they sort of perceive themselves as equals at the onset and at the end. I mean, do you think you would have been comfortable like if your career had worked out differently and that you would have been in a partnership all these years, like if you and someone else, like all, all the things you did starting back at ESPN, going all the way up to the ringer, if it always been you and somebody else, I think it would have think... been weird. I, especially cause I'm an only child, you know, I'm not, I'm not used to just making decisions as a combo, you know, hmm. I mean, hmm. marriage, marriage kind of teaches you some of that stuff. Mike and Mike were a good example of this, right? Mike and Mike were on ESPN sure. for, yeah forever. And they were really successful as a morning show. And then at some point, Greenberg had some sort of, you know, career midlife crisis where he's like, you know what? Kind of want to do my own thing. I want out. And they had this pretty bitter breakup and Greenberg went on and ascended and Mike Golick's no longer at ESPN. Now Greenberg's on get up and on countdown and all these different things. Cause he clearly was just like, I'm done at Mike and the mad dogs. Another example. And mm -hmm. I don't even know who won that one. I think part of it is when you spend every day with somebody professionally, it's pretty rare that it just lasts. You know, like Howard and Robin Quivers, those two but that's, last. But, but that's not an equal partnership. It's not an equal partnership. There's not, there's, you know, that's, that, that, that's not even close. I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, like, I, uh, I, I, because I, I have, I have to admit, I, I, I'm like you in this way. I don't, I don't think that I would like it's it's whenever I've had to work with someone else, like on a story, uh, like I'm just, it, I have a tendency to either want to like just rewrite everything or to almost concede everything and just let them kind of make all the decisions. Um, but I don't, I, I guess I don't feel as much this idea that someone has to win between the two things. No, um, I'm not or, saying someone well, has to win. I'm saying that's how well, it usually ends it, up playing out for whatever reason. It does. It does. You know, um, uh, it's just, it's, but, but it, it's also interesting though, because you also like the idea of sort of group dynamics. Like you like having a group of people. I do. You. Like if I've you been... were, if you were a musician, you would want to have a band. 
Right. If I was a musician, I would have one of those bands where everybody stayed together for like 30 years. I mean, that's basically what we have now with the with Fantasy and Mallory and Juliet and and Chris and Jeff who joined us halfway through. But I, I've been working closely with the same people now for 10, 11, 12 years. You know, it's pretty rare. But I I, I love that. I'm just talking. I think it's different when it's like it's Mike and Mike and you're just attached to this other person. And that's how the outside world sees you. Like the Jesus and Mero, and I, there's a million reasons why those guys broke up, but I thought they were really good together. It was disappointing to me that they didn't figure out how to navigate it. And there's a lot of insight. There's reasons that it didn't last, but um, it's pretty rare to have two people stay together. I think a group dynamic's a little different because the group kind of can fill each other out in all these different ways. I was like, I mean, I love when bands stay together for a long time. You know, like I love that Pearl Jam is still together and touring. Like even the Counting Crows, I saw them last month and, you know, the core of that group has been together for a while. And I don't know, I always enjoy that. Well, I mean, when bands stay together for a long time, Pearl Jam, U2. U2 is another great one. ZZ Top. Uh, you know, um, R.E.M. actually for a very long time was able to do this. It's always the same reason why. It's always the same. It's that that from the very beginning, they split the money exactly equally, even if they're not all contributing the same. That's always what it is. I mean, granted, I'm sure it's a little different with like publishing and stuff like that. But, you know, the, 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 that if you, if you start with this idea that we're splitting everything equally and that it, it, we can't change that, we're inflexible on that, um, that does seem to sustain long-term sort of success, you know? Well, uh, when they don't do um, that with the publishing, that's when yeah. the band falls apart. Mm. When the guy's like, I wrote all these songs. Why am I only, only getting 15% of the royalties on them? I did literally all the work. Well, yeah, you know, it's a hard argument to, to it's a hard thing to dispute in a sense, unless you've made this like just sort of very galvanized sort of concrete idea that we're doing this regardless. Like even if it doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, it seems like, I th one of the reasons I think we have less bands than we used to is because I think people realized how dumb the economics were. If most bands have a signature guy or maybe two signature guys and you know, it's like an NBA team. Those are like the LeBron and Wade. And then you might need a Chris Bosh, but for the most part, you can find the Haslam's and the Mike Miller's and people like that. They're pretty interchangeable. But we don't, and we don't have, we don't have less bands though. How, how, why, why, have, how, I think we have less successful bands. We have less successful bands. I think we because, have way more individual artists now than yeah. bands. And I think that's totally flipped. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's like bands for the most part, you know, make rock. Individuals make pop. There's a, there's many, many exceptions to both this, but that tends to be the case. And pop is so much more dominant over rock now. You know, yeah. it's like it's that that's, a, uh, I think, probably the, the, the biggest factor. I mean, I, I think that there are certainly less visible bands, but I don't think there's less bands. I don't I don't get that sense. I, I, I worry about that sometimes. Well, how many like how many great rock bands can you think of from the last 15 years? That started in the last 15 years? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's great. I mean, so it's like that that they, uh, you know, that they're. That had like a real impact. Well. Because if we go back 20 years, you can bring in the Strokes and the Killers and all. No, and that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, you got to go back further. You got to go back yeah, 25. Yeah, you got like 01, now. yeah, or 22 um, years, whatever. I, it just, it's, 
Yeah, I, I, we, it, it seems like often when we get into these conversations and these podcasts, we end up doing this. But it's just like there's just so <laughs> many there's so many things that are just that just because of our age and the way the world is sort of unspooled. It's like it's going to be really hard to get used to. I mean, like I was just I don't know if um, the math is right exactly on this, but I was like I was thinking about like the hold steady, and I yeah. think now that the time the number of years the hold steady have existed might be more than from when the Beatles started to when Lennon was assassinated. Oh my God. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, cause yeah. I mean, I'm saying if the Beatles is a recording outfit, you know, if you start look at them with, with the, when they were recording records, you know, that's, uh, that's that from that period to his assassination is less than 20 years. And these bands have existed now for, more than 20 years. I mean, that's just, it's, I, 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 there's like a lot of reasons you can use to explain this and how time has changed and our culture and shit has changed, but it's. Well, let me ask you this. Who do you think the three most influential musicians of the last 15 years were? Basically, so we'll go back to when Twitter was created, when social media is taking off in all these different ways. Well, Taylor 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 Swift. Swift would be an easy one. Um, most, are you saying most influential? I mean, most influential, who is influenced, who has influenced the well, most Beyonce aspiring be musicians? Beyonce would be number two. I mean, it's like, you talk about, like, and, and I would say Kanye would be number three. Now, uh, in terms of, but I'm kind of looking at this, like who had the biggest impact on music, on the world, all of these things. It would be those three individuals, not, not purely. Right, flip the question. Yeah, who, yeah. who influenced the most? Last 15 years, who influenced the most aspiring musicians who were like in their teens or early 20s, who were, who were like, I want to be like that person? I suppose people would say Billie Eilish because her and her brother uh, really mainstreamed the idea that you could make a major record in your own house and it's not that strange. And the... Uh, uh, you don't have to look in any way that seems conventional to success and all of these things. Uh, that probably is, although that's, you know, it, it's, it, okay, I, I, like I'm, I'm a huge Kiss fan, right? Um, th- there's probably nobody in the 70s maybe who inspired more guitar players than Ace Frehley, but that didn't necessarily generate the most good bands. Right. You know, it's like, it's like the fact that the idea that of like convincing people that they can make uh, records on their laptop in their house, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a rock star in any way. You don't have to be a pop star in any way. You can just do it. That is inspiring to somebody who wants to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean that the manifestation of that is going to be a lot of good music. In fact, uh, you know, I think it would be, uh, I, I, I mean, it just, it seems like in some ways, uh, the things that is, inspire people now to become artists is having somewhat negative effect on the actual product. But yeah. I'm glad you brought up Billie Eilish because that's what I was kind of getting to. I, I think it's probably Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish. And then you could argue about who the hip hop person is. And those would be the three. And I'm saying last 15 years, I think there's more people and maybe I'm more aware of this because I have two kids in high school or one about to go to college, but I think there's 
more people out there trying to be Billie Eilish or some variation of how she does what, what succeeded for her than just about anything. And then Taylor's, you know, Sage, you can't compare her to anything. She's the biggest star of the last 20 years. The, the idea though of like inspiring young people, it's, it's kind of changed in a way in the sense that for the, for say 1950 through maybe uh, like maybe the, the, the late eighties to early nineties. Um, yeah. The idea of, of this rock music and pop music was still like, this is music for young people. Like this is what is like most important about like rock as an art form is that it was the first time there was ever an art form that was specifically designed for teenagers and for young people. And that that was part of it. And that, that the idea of this being sort of a youthful uh, expression of ideas or whatever is built into this. And that is not the case now. I mean, now, uh, you know, rock music is for older people. Pop music is really for all people. Uh, it is not weird for a 65-year-old person to love Taylor Swift. That's not surprising at this point. So the fact that Billie Eilish is causing a lot of maybe a lot of 14-year-olds to want to make music, that means something different than it would have meant if she would have been an artist like, you know, in the relatively recent past. Like, I, it, it doesn't seem as important to me when you're looking at the value of an artist uh, uh, if they are inspirational to young people anymore because music, pop music in this way is no longer designed just for young people. And you know, now it's, 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 it's just the music of this period. You know? Who do you think is the most influential rock musician of the last 15 years? Like if I'm like, my son wants to, play bass in a band who are they who is the band emulating uh vampire weekend maybe and i mean well i think that they're you know they're just really highly musical so if you're the kind of person who's getting into a band like you're you're a musician who wants to do this you're probably going to be drawn to the kind of group that makes you go like oh this is what they're doing here is like really innovative and interesting and uh, i want to do this as well um uh, trying to think of, I mean, I might be overlooking somebody obvious, but that's, you know, I mean, now probably I would say even probably Taylor Swift still that, you know, that, that, because it's that the, the assumption would be that like, well, okay. Uh, uh, what, what what does a successful artist do now? Well, they have to write about themselves. They have to mine their own experience for music. Um, they need to, uh, you know, uh, sort of think about the end product while they're in the process of creating the initial thing, you know, and she's very much like that. I mean, like, I think that when Taylor Swift writes songs, I think that she has an idea of the end before she does anything. You know? Yeah, I don't know what to make of the Taylor Swift thing anymore because... I've never seen anybody so prolifically crush every piece of whatever their career is. Like usually the kind of artists we're used to is you become famous, you become super famous, and then you start to get weird. Mm. Seems to be the arc. Yeah. And whether she's weird or not, I don't, who knows, but publicly and from a work standpoint, the work continues to, everybody still seems to be really pleased and, you know, we have a podcast, every single album where they break down all the Taylor stuff. They're like, they feel like she's getting better. And that's, that's pretty unusual for music. 
Because music usually it's, what is it? Seven, 10, 12 years. That's kind of the run. And then you start repeating yourself. But like, I mean, she's very open about this. Like she spent her childhood watching behind the music. Her whole life is thinking about what goes wrong with bands. Why yeah. do successful bands fail? How can I avoid that? It's like she started thinking about being a musician the age she is now when she was 14 years old. I mean, it's a little bit like I, what they're saying about like Wemby or whatever, that he's like was started thinking about the NBA when he was 12 and, yeah. and everything that he's done in his life. Like, I'm going to learn English so I'll be better able to to give interviews when I'm in the NBA, you know, nine years from now or whatever. It's like, I, I just kids now, I, I think are, are, are sort of often sort of socialized and almost programmed to have an adult understanding of the world before they understand the world. In other words, what I'm saying is that they use the language that an adult uses to describe mm. sort of like, um, how one goes through life, even though they don't really have an idea of what life experience is like. It's like Taylor Swift was preparing for life experiences she had no relationship to. Like she she was preparing herself to deal with like, well, you know, what if I get caught up in drugs? And she had never even seen drugs. You know, it's like she's thinking about these things beforehand. Um, and then when you do that, you end up sort of giving those things a meaning. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's, it just, it just things happen faster and slower at the same time. Let's take a break. I want to keep going on this. All right, we were talking about Taylor Swift and the run she had. And you mentioned the bear earlier, and I was thinking the bear leaned into some REM in strange a real way. They play strange <laughs> currencies a lot. <laughs> it's like... And I was thinking that was like one of the biggest bands in the world. I don't know for they. I mean, they had one of the weirdest starts ever because the whole point of the band in the eighties was that they didn't want to be one of the biggest bands in the world. And they're at the forefront of this music scene that was just kind of happening. And then they became this giant band and they crossed over in pop culture in all these different ways. And then I think mostly because of who the lead singer is and how he's just not that interested in being famous and, doing stuff and keeping the legacy. They weren't doing like an REM big concert tour. We're back. And they weren't doing any of the cycles that bands have to do to kind of stay alive after their run. Now they're kind of weirdly underrated. I don't even know what athlete they would be. And when you hear them in the bear, you're like, oh yeah, REM, one of the biggest bands in the world. I think that's the only band from that era that I feel that way about, where it's like, it's actually the impact of them, the way I feel it now, anecdotally or just even thinking about listening to them versus how I felt when I was like in college, it's probably the biggest disparity. So I was excited to hear them in the bear, but it's just what, if you could, if you could take REM from like 96 on and be like, no guys do it this way. And they could have, but it's kind of wouldn't have fit in with what REM was to begin with. So I kind of like how this played out. The reason I'm bringing this up is you told me to watch that documentary about dinosaur junior, which I loved. And it was the same thing. These bands that to the bitter end are going to stay who they were when they were successful. And I, I don't know, I felt like there was a parallel between those two things, but you go, you tell me what you well, think. Well, yeah, I, you know, what would I have told REM after 1996? So is that, so, so New Adventures and Hi-Fi was out. That's a real good record. Um, I think 
they're probably in the process of getting ready to make up, I would guess. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I guess I, I wouldn't, I, if I was trying to what, advise them on how to keep going, well, I would say, don't have your drummer quit, but it's like the drummer quit for justifiable reasons. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it would be, it would be, it would have been strange for them to have sort of become just a completely commercial entity. I don't think it would have. I don't know. Like you too. Yeah. I'm not sure it would have, it would have worked. I don't, uh, uh, I, I don't, uh, they, they sort of, you know, were kind of pioneering college rock and that merged with regular mainstream rock and pop. Uh, so then they, it's, they they couldn't have they could never have been so different than other bands once they'd become that popular. I don't know. I would I would have had very little advice from them. Plus they signed they had signed a huge contract, I think, with Warner. And they I did. think like we did it. We made it. That's it. You know, uh like in terms of money, we don't gotta worry about it anymore. Um not, not that I'm sure they probably didn't worry about it that much to begin with. Um I mean Dinosaur Jr. is was just that's uh, the part of the reason this documentary is called Freak Scene. It's a very cheaply made documentary. It's mo you know, it's, it's you're it's not going to on brand for them. <laughs> um, but you know, like uh, Jay Maskus in there at one point says, like, well, you know, all these other bands were talking about having fun, and 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 was it still fun for them? And like, we thought music was important. We never thought it was fun. Like he's kind of like the guy from the Bear. Like in this way, it's like like Jay Maskus was like, what I'm doing is meaningful to me and meaningful to the world, and it's I I the idea that I'm going to enjoy this and be happy with it, uh, it is not really a factor. Uh, the, I, that that you know, so like, so like I say, I watched that Wham documentary, I watched the um, the Dinosaur Junior one, and then I watched another documentary on the Melvins, which is uh, and there's this this network called like. It's like free V or free TV. Do you know yeah, what I'm talking about? It's part about? of Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got to watch commercials and it's very confusing because the commercials are always like, you know, for, uh, you know, like a, like some, like a, like, like adult diapers or something. And they almost seem like it could be Melvin's videos. So when it cuts to the video, I'm like, is this part of, you know, it cuts to the commercials. Um, but you know, like the, the, the Melvin's philosophy was pretty much like, we want to exist as a band for as long as possible and never have a job. So music is my only job, but I don't want to compromise at all. I will not compromise one inch. So how do I find a way to have a career making only music without making any compromises at all? And the solution seemed to be just never stop touring and make as, write as many songs as possible. But I mean, like those, those three documentaries, the Dinosaur Jr., the Melvins and the, and Wham, it's like, it's, they're, they're, they were kind of cool to watch in this group because they really show three completely different ways to think about being a musician and to think about what is meaningful about music. I mean, it was just, you know. Well, one of the funny things, Dinosaur Jr., like, there, it's a documentary that would have been made in like 1994, the way they're, it's filmed and, and produced. You know, they'll yes. have like Henry Rollins is in his dressing room and you could just tell it's being filmed by like somebody's iPhone. And then it's well, like, here's, here's our Henry Rollins interview. And it's like, this looks like it was from 80 years ago. They never match the sound levels. 
It's no. like some interviews are loud and some are barely like you can barely hear them. I had to keep changing <laughs> the volume on you. Yeah. I thought it was on brand for them though. Well, I mean, it, it's it, kind of like what you would have expected from a dinosaur junior documentary. Well, there's a section in the documentary where their van breaks down in Idaho for 10 days. Okay. So they're stuck in this tiny hotel. The three guys in the band are stuck in this hotel together for 10 days. It essentially ruins their relationship and ends the band. And they never fucking explain what happened. Like, <laughs> Like they never actually say what happened in this hotel. And it's like, I, I, I was watching with my wife and she's like, did we miss part of this? Like, we, and so we like, we rewound a little bit of it. They just they never actually say what happened. It was like, that's very on brand for Dinosaur Jr. as well. It's like, we're, we're all going to admit that this happened and you're never going to understand why. Yeah. How many documentaries are you like? How many do you watch a year? You think? Oh. If you include like the multi-part true crime type things. Yeah, I don't know, but I guess between 50 and 100, because I always watch one a week and sometimes I watch two. Because yeah. you and I have always loved documentaries. I mean, for, ever since I'd known you, we would be like, how did you? And there just seems like there's more than ever, but I do feel like we're hitting a true crime, some sort of tipping point. First of all, we're running out of murders. You know, we're running out of famous things. Now they're doing six-part documentaries about murders I never even knew about when I was alive, you know? Well, that's true. Yes. But the thing about it is, though, about those true crime documentaries, which I know that people are always hammering and they have all these issues with them. And it always seems to be at a woman being killed. And that's true. And all that's accurate. The one thing I'll say about those films is that you see people in these documentaries you never see in any other media extension. Like you see people like an in-depth discussion with people who would never be on TV or never be in a movie or never be in a magazine article. So I do think that in some ways that, that even though they're kind of salacious and in some ways sort of kind of playing into just like uh, people sort of kind of like dark, darkest desires or darkest impulses, they are showing uh, a, a part of the country and a, and a part of the populace that would never be seen otherwise, you know? And that's always interesting to me. Well, I remember in the 90s, I remember seeing Hoop Dreams in the theater. When was yes. that? 93, 94, whenever that was. And it was just like, it just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I, I just can't believe this movie even exists. I, I was so fascinated by every single second of it because back in the day, you know, it was like cable and books and some Sports Illustrated profiles. That's about all I'm getting in this whole world. And now I'm in it. And then I remember the other one that made me feel that way was uh, totally different reasons. The Paradise Lost documentary that they mm -hmm. ended up doing, I think, three different versions yeah. of. But these kids that were allegedly inspired by Metallica to commit these murders, then it's like, did they? And are they being wrongfully imprisoned? And then what's up with the stepfather? Why did he get his teeth removed? I remember House and I, this is late nineties and we watched it and we, we would just have phone calls about it. You know, it was like, like this is 10 years before podcast and be like, just going through like all the beats of it, like, Oh my God. And now that paradise lost thing that probably has been made, I don't know, 5,000 times in different kind of documentaries. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, it's, I, would, yeah. I would love to go back and watch it and see like, does it hold up or was it just so new? That's why I thought it was great. Well, I the, you talk about Hoop Dreams, you talk about Paradise Lost. Uh, there's a documentary about the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown massacre. It's like this. If you spend a bunch of years with someone, it's going to be a good film. Like, I mean, Hoop Dreams is a bunch of years. That yeah. when, when, when I first saw that, well, 
you know, I, I guess I wasn't as there. I guess there's sort of a history of this, but like I was young enough where I was like, how many years did they spend with these people before they made this? It just didn't seem possible to me that they would have invested this much time when, you know, there had to have been a point when they're like, are we even going to like, is this going to be anything or like, like, or how did, how did they know? Like, what was their initial plan when they met those kids right away? Were they going to follow them for a year? I mean, that's, if somebody wants to make a great documentary, there is one somewhat easy way to do it, which is find anything remotely interesting and spend eight years with them. Like, it will be good at the end. Like, it just will be. Like, you know, it's like my life would be interesting if someone just hung out with me for eight years and filmed everything, you know? <laughs> I would totally watch that. Yeah, um, yeah I'm with you. I, I, I'm really interested to see where the form goes because there's so many of them and we've entered, I've talked about this before, but a little bit of this infomercial era now where the artists or the athletes or the teams or whoever, they, they know that these things are valuable, but they also want to control it. So we're hitting this weird stage of them now where they're, yes. they're, the, there's an authenticity piece that I'm always suspicious of with most of these that are done. Did you watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary? I watched the entire yeah. documentary. Okay. I think so this is a good example. Yeah. I, and now I, I, first of all, I would say it's pretty good. I'm going to, I'm going to stay up front. Like I, I enjoyed watching. Okay. Well, he's a great now, interview. Yeah. Like okay. so, and it's mostly an interview yeah. of him and he's compelling. So, you know, it's broken into three sections. It's broken into him as an athlete, him as an actor and him as an American, which is basically his political career. The stuff about him as an athlete, I, I it's like, it's, I don't know what else there would be. It's like, it's, it's the way you do it. Even if he, if the, if he wasn't involved, like it's like we were doing it about him, that's how you do it. But it was it was compromised by the fact that Pumping Iron is one of the great sports documentaries ever. So if you saw that sure. yes. part one, it's like I don't even need to see this. Yes, although his childhood stuff was a little more interesting than I expected. And I don't think that was yeah. in Pumping Iron. The part where it's about him as an actor, uh, still pretty good, although it would have been helped by having anyone who could be somewhat critical of his films because it is not as though he's had a perfect career as a, a film star. And then the third part... Wait, hold on. Can you hold uh, on? Oh, go ahead. No, I have uh, a comment on part uh, two, but go on part three. The third part about his political career would have really been served by somebody talking about the things that went wrong uh, when he was governor, as opposed to him just describing the experience of how it felt. Now, now, I'm not saying because I'm not like, oh, he was a terrible governor or something. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that as the stakes of something get higher, it is sort of tough to sort of just rely on the source to give sort of the full uh, picture of what happened. I mean, like you've, had, I know you've had this issue like with, with Morissette and with Kenny G and these things where it's like, it is weird where you sort of know that this person you're learning about does have uh, some editorial degree, not as uh, the filmmaker does, but can kind of shape it. Like this is, this is the thing about me that's important. Like I'll maybe even give you freedom to show it any way you want, but I'm sort of setting the terms and that does change things. But I, I can't see how, how documentaries are going to be any different going forward because like they realize how valuable these things are and, and they, they want to do them, you know? You know what's happened? It's, they're basically autobiographies. They're video autobiographies. Yes. So we, we grew yeah. up reading autobiographies our whole lives. And you'd read them and you would take stuff with a grain of salt. And it was like this person's version of what my life was. And 
a biography is so much different than an autobiography. And the books that I think you and I probably love the most are the biographies. But I also love autobiographies. And you were always like, you can pull stuff out. Like in this Arnold thing, which I don't know if I would recommend. But the movie, the part two movie section, which you said, as you point out, like it's, you know, it's the glass half full version of Arnold's career. And he was the biggest star of the world. There's like an eight minute section of him and Sly Stallone talking about the rivalry they had that I mm-hmm. thought was like one of the best sections I've seen in a documentary in like five years. I was so into it. I didn't even know that they knew they were in a rivalry. And not only did they know it, they like kind of, they really went into it about how they measured each other, measured themselves against each other. And I just thought that was so interesting. These guys have been in my life, you know, for almost all of my life. I had no idea that they felt like it was a rivalry. So it had that in there and that made it worth watching the whole thing for me. You know, a lot of which I wasn't crazy about. Well, yeah. What, what part, what, what didn't you like about it? I mean, the stuff you pointed out, it's, mm. it was too infomercial, infomercially autobiography ish, but sometimes that's the deal you make when you want to do these. And I think, I think the problem is, is that just what we're going to be getting going forward? And if, if, if that's what we're getting, like Magic Johnson has written two autobiographies, right? Those were his perspective on what happened to him. It wasn't balanced, but like the stuff you and I like, or, you know, like Richard Ben Kramer writing about Joe DiMaggio and shit like that. I would much rather read those personally. I'd rather read Halberstam go and spend a year with the Portland Trailblazers and write about what the team was versus like Dr. Jack Ramsey's autobiography about what the title season was like, you know, but that's me. Would you allow someone to make a documentary about your life and give them full control? No, would you want and you to, wouldn't either. Would you allow Michael Lewis to spend five months with you to write a book about your life? No, I don't uh, think I would. You, so I, there's no writer who you would trust enough to do that. I had, I, I talked about this recently. There was one time right after I got suspended when this writer I really respected asked if, um, if he could write a feature and spend time with me. And I thought about it more, less about me, but more about, it was such an interesting time in my life. I'd be like, I'd be really interested to read this 10 years from now. You know, it's just somebody like trying to capture whatever the fuck is happening right now. How close did you come to saying yes? I said no, but I I did think about it, but ultimately, I don't don't know. I think because we're writers, you think about, you're always like putting yourself in the shoe of how the writer, it's just not, it's not worth it. I think from a documentary standpoint, it does feel like it's part of what being a, a legitimately famous person. So, you know, Michael Jordan, we we had that footage in the late 2000s. We were trying to get it done when we were doing 30 for 30 and he just never wanted to pull the trigger on it. I thought it was really interesting why he ended up doing it or why I think he ended up wanting to do it because he could feel his legacy starting to slip away a little bit. And it was kind of, there was this whole LeBron Kobe generation that had come in. And to me, I, he's so smart about everything. I think he was like, you know what? I think people are starting to forget. Let's, it's time. And he wanted to get paid and did no, the whole thing. Well, if, if I, I, I don't know if that was his thinking, but if it was, he did it perfect. I think that was his thinking. Like, you know, it was just, and then the timing with the pandemic, which obviously he couldn't have planned, but that. Well, I mean, but remember, he also did the Wright Thompson feature, which he never would have done. That was know, a way. I, that was a ways back, though. Yeah, but it was in the mid two thousand mid two thousand tens. It was somewhere around there. But it was it was very. 
I thought it was really interesting that he did that. So I always think about, because all these guys have teams around them, you know? So if they're going to make a decision like, hey, Ray Thompson wants to do a feature on you. That's not, so, not some famous person going, okay, cool. Yeah, tell him, come over on Tuesday. Like he's going to discuss it or she's going to discuss it with all the people they trust in their life, right? And they came to the decision, this would be a good thing if you did this, right? So that, that when you come to that conclusion, that's always interesting how people come to that conclusion. This is good for me if I do this. Did you come close to doing that story? The only reason I came close was because I really liked the writer and I thought it was a... Who was it? Could you tell me or is that your... No, nah, I'm not going to say the writer, but it was a particularly unique time. You know, it was literally right after I got suspended and uh, just all that shit was going down. And, and um, I was like, you know, this would be interesting for somebody to kind of capture all this, but I don't know. Now, I don't know if I, if I wish that it happened or not. Probably like 50-50. Nobody's ever written like a big feature about you, right? How big of a feature? I mean, like a giant mag, you know, where they spent like three months with you, nothing like that. Oh, no, that would, yeah. no, uh, no, 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 no. You would no. hate that. Yeah, I would never, I would never, I would never want to do that as a writer. I certainly wouldn't want someone hanging, because it's just, you would, it, no, I mean, and it, it, I, no, not, nothing close, no. Let's take one more break, because I have three more things to hit with you. So I had some quick questions to throw at you as we head toward the summer break. Um, and it, this goes off the documentary conversation we just had. Are documentaries replacing books, not for everybody, but for a significant chunk of people who used to, like 30 years ago, you went, I don't know, you went away for, the, for a vacation for a week and you'd be like, I'm going to read the two new John Grissom books. And I'm going to read, you know, maybe... You and I are, we read more than probably the average person, but it'd be like, all right, I'm going to, I got to catch up. I got to read these two, these two books, these Grisham books came out. And then there's a sports book I want to read. I'm going to bring these three books. I'm going to try to bang all those three out. And now it feels like people talk that way about TV where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I got 10 days off. I got to catch up on the bear. I haven't watched that yet. And then there's that Schwarzenegger documentary. And then that Bill Walton, that four-parter ESPN did. I want to watch that. And it's just kind of taken the place of books. I don't feel like there's room for both necessarily. Maybe there is for the rare people like you. But for the most no, part, it feels no, like documentaries I mean, on the corner. Well, it, it seems like high-end television has sort of taken the place of novels in a lot of people's lives. I think documentaries have as well in the kind of in the nonfiction realm. But a big part of that is just like this is sort of a a, a technology thing. I mean, so yeah. prior to 1990, um, you know, it, it was kind of hard to see documentaries. They didn't play in lots of towns. Not everybody had a VCR. If you had a VCR, you had to have a documentary section at the video store. And, you know, Roger and me was there, but not everything. Now, when they documentaries, were also not very good, they weren't, you know, they were harder to make. Oh, these well, giant, they had these giant yeah. cameras. It just, they, it, this wasn't an easy experience to create a documentary. But but the thing is, the ones that did work in some ways were superior because it was 
it was closer to conventional filmmaking. Whereas there, where, you know, where uh, now uh, it's so easy to make a documentary that it's often just like a person sitting there talking. I mean, it's like a lot of documentaries now that I even I see in a theater sometimes um, seem closer to what used to be how documentaries were kind of presented on television. I mean, the, the to right, me, like an American the, yes, masters yeah. or something. I mean, to, the, the, the documentaries that I am most attracted to uh, are the ones that are like no talking heads, all found footage, you know, like the, like the Mike the, Wallace one. That was a good one. Exactly. Or, you know, or, um, there was a really great one about, a, a about, a uh, like a, a race car driver from a few years ago. Um, a guy I never knew anything about. Oh, Senna. We yeah, did that Senna, one. Senna, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, it's, a uh, that I think when that, the, the, the princess Diana one, that came out was actually pretty good. By the way, those yeah. are the fucking hardest no. ones to make. Well, of course, yes. Yeah. You know, that is like a particular crazy skill set that only a few people have. Well, Amy Winehouse was like that too. There's, there are just inevitably going to be situations where it's like, this is so great, but we have to describe what's going on here. I need someone to explicitly say this was backstage at wherever, or this was in the locker room. And sometimes you just can't find that. And then that it's, and then it's just, so then you're, you're sort of confused as to what you're actually seeing. So, you know, and then the keys are always like, if when like, say when Princess Diana and Prince Charles are being interviewed, the, the 60 seconds before, like the, the, the camera's on, but the interview hasn't started. Oh, I and love the, those. And, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, They're that's like anyway. in, that, in that one that you guys did about the whole, the OJ Chase day, um, you know, all that stuff. Like the most interesting kind of realist parts are like when like Bob Costas is being explained, okay, this is what you got to tell people. The NBA finals are on, but you got to, you know, that that's the stuff that's like, oh yes. You know, this is like, this is something that I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm seeing a reality that I did not know was there. I remember when Brett Morgan, when he pitched the idea to us about the OJ car chase doc. And he was like, I think I can just do it with all the footage. I didn't even understand like how he was going to do it. It was, it was like, wait, what? Cause it was so ingrained in my head. Like, yeah, you have to have the interview with this person and this person and this person. He's like, nah, I'm just going to try to capture the day through the footage. I was like, all right, see if that one works. And then it fucking worked. But now it's, those are impossible to make like that. Mike Wallace one that Avi Bell could make, uh, I don't know, it was five years ago, but it was like everybody was dead in the documentary, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, to yeah, pull yeah. that off. Like, Jesus. But at least, but at least he's a broadcaster. You right. know, that's like it's, the footage. It's, it's easier to do a documentary about that, about a broadcaster or about an actor or about somebody who just has, for whatever reason, often been in front of cameras. What's tough is when it's just like, like there's that, that 10 part documentary trauma zone, which is about, you know, basically the fall of the Soviet Union, well, actually, and, and emergence as Russia from like 1985 to 1999. And that's all it is. It's just found footage from like Russian TV and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's just, when that works, it's just, there's just, it's as good as it gets. There's nothing is better than that. Yeah. There's another piece of documentaries that, I mean, it's maybe more specific to me, but when somebody has an awesome idea that I'd always either wanted to do or potentially do and they fuck it up, it makes me so bad <laughs> where it's just like, oh, you guys had the idea and now nobody else could do the idea. Like you, you, they kind of pee on the idea, but they do a bad job of it. 
And then you're like, Jesus, now it's like, it's like seven years before anybody can go back with the same idea. <laughs> I uh, suppose that's cause, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to hold off. I was going to, I'll tell you after we're done one documentary that drove me fucking crazy. I don't want to shit on another documentary. Um, all right, more stuff for us. We had 599 scripted TV shows in 2022. Did you know that? No. That's how many shows were made in 2022. <laughs> 599. There were um, 877,000 shows available on all the different streamers that have been made over the last, I don't know, 70 years. Um, I, w I was trying to get my daughter to watch an episode of Cheers because I was curious. Uh -huh. I was like, Cheers, can you watch this? Just what, tell me what you think. And my son was with us. They lasted like four minutes. They're like, it's too slow. People are, the clothes are too old. It's just too long ago. I can't watch this. And I was like, this is like one of the five best comedies ever. Like, we don't care. It's too old. So I'm wondering, are we hitting the point where shows, you know, when we were kids or younger and like our parents would watch like the Andy Griffith show would be on or some sort of fifties Western. And they'd be like, Oh, this is a great one. You'll love this. And we would watch it and be like, this sucks. And now I'm the parents where I'm like, you guys got to watch cheers. This is literally an iconic comedy. And they're like, eh, but I could show them, I don't know, hot rod with Andy Samberg. And they'd be like all in, by the way, decent movie. Um, it's just weird. Do we have too much content? What's going to happen? All the content. Most of it will disappear. It'll be as if it never existed at all. I mean, you know, people had this worry and then when cable came into existence, they're like, TV's on all the time. Now there's all these channels. What's going to happen to all this? And most of it did just kind of, it was ephemeral and it was gone. Um, you know, uh, uh, the idea is showing something old to a young person and they don't get, I mean, that's just, that's how it always has been. And as your kids mature and they get more interested in culture and art and history, they might not feel that way. Like I, I, I can definitely see myself having not wanted to watch an episode of the Andy Griffith show when I was young, I would watch it very differently now. Mm. All right. Next topic. I know like you, you love conspiracies and we've talked about conspiracies many times and it just feels like UFOs have be UFO sightings have become more acceptable. We had a, a lady on a plane who was demanding to be let off because there was an imaginary, pa imaginary pastor that only she could see. And this became a week long story. What fascinated you about this? I'm glad you brought this up. I found this to be, uh, uh, compelling in a way that uh, is unique to me. Okay, so uh, okay, so if, if people don't know what this is, there's this woman, she's flying from Dallas to Orlando. She's like kind of wearing a sleeveless gray shirt, you know, uh, uh, and I guess Carrot Top is on this plane, supposedly. Um, but she goes up the aisle of the plane and she turns around and she's like, that motherfucker is not real. I'm getting off this plane. That motherfucker, I, you don't got to believe me. I don't care. That guy is not real. And uh, I wonder if this is going to start happening more and more. Oh. Because where's the woman? 
You know, I, I'm sure now this is gonna this is gonna air, and there's gonna be a bunch of people tweeting at me that this woman is given seven interviews. But it seems like she has just disappeared. And this idea, you know, it's just strange thing she said. She wasn't like, "It's a cyborg," or "That's a shape shifting reptile." She's like, "That guy is not real." What does it mean? I, I just feel like this is going to be the next thing. Unreal people. <laughs> so you think this is part of a trend? I don't know. There was just there, it, it, like there was something. It seems like the next step that, you know, and as, as, as the world kind of gets weirder and weirder that we're going to start having this epidemic of people feeling other people or accusing other people of not being real. It does feel like the beginning. We have to get your dog on this. You got to bring your dog on airplanes. Which dog? The one that sees ghosts? Yes. Yeah. Well, did I tell you what's going on with the, with the, I told you what was going on with the new house, right? What? We got something on the third floor. Something. Yeah. What? It's unclear that we've had two people that my wife knows who um, are a little witchy. Yeah, you oh, mentioned I, that. I think I've talked yeah. about this before. Not to you well, on a pod, he, he, but to somebody else. Well, you were talking about that someone committed suicide in your house. No, no, that was the old house. Oh, we talked uh, about that the last time. So yeah. the new house brought two. So when there, there were people, because we had some stuff to fix, and the workers were like, we heard somebody laughing on the third floor. And the little girl's voice, they were freaked out. They were like, we don't know what's going on on the third floor in the attic. And we had, my wife brought two different people over who both were a little witchy and they both went up to the attic. Okay. And they're like, whoa, definitely a vibe. They walked, turned the corner where like some of the electrical equipment is and they were like, it's in there. And they walked, they both not knowing each other walked over to the same spot. What do they think? They felt like something not great happened in that corner. But in the attic. But mm. our attitude is not afraid. We we embrace all the spirits. And uh, you know, it's just just trying here to just try to have a happy time in the house. So they have a they got a a bad feeling. Bad, like not just a strange feeling, a bad feeling. Yeah, like it was like something something not great happened, but you guys will be okay. Just don't don't do like weird Ouija board shit yeah. and try to bring I the mean, spirits out. It's a little surprising because when people tend to do terrible things in houses, they tend to use the basement. You know, that's oh. where they always, they don't often use the attic for that. You know, yeah. I mean, the attic is where you trap someone, where you keep someone. Well, maybe that's so, what yes, happened. That someone has been kept in your attic. Yeah, I, feel, I don't know if I'm getting older and crazier, but I feel like I'm more receptive to all these stories. Like that lady in the plane, I was like, yeah, maybe that wasn't a 
Maybe that person wasn't real. Maybe shit's going down. Well, what do you think she meant when she said he, he, she, that the person isn't real? This is what I keep thinking about. What does she mean by this? I think she means she was sitting next to this person who was pretending to be a human being, but wasn't. And when you're sitting next to somebody in an airplane, you get a pretty good feel for who's next to you, right? And she must have been like, something is not human about this person. I am freaked out. And maybe he did something that made her double down on that thought. I thought it was one of the weirdest videos I've ever seen because it wasn't, she didn't seem crazy. She seemed agitated, but I wouldn't say this was not like this lunatic outside of, you know, on some corner of a street just acting crazy. Like she was like adamant something fucked up was going on. Well, I, I just keep wondering what this was because if, you know, she's just saying he's, this person's not real. She's not specifying what the supposedly thing that, you know, that, that he had like a serpentine tongue or yeah. that, that she looked into his chest and it was, uh, you know, there was like, there was like tubes and wires. It's like just something that was unreal. Um, you know, uh, uh, maybe he's a magician. Maybe there's a magician on the flight. And he just did an amazing illusion without telling her that he's a magician. That could make you think someone is unreal. Sometimes we use the term unreal to describe things that are just great. Like, oh, Giannis, he's unreal in the paint. Maybe maybe somebody, maybe the guy just did something incredible. But her 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 look of fear, like legitimate fear. And like, also, I think it's interesting she said, you don't have to believe me. I don't care. I'm getting off the plane because people who uh, are insane, I'm not saying she's not, but people who are insane tend to try to convince you to believe them. They very rarely say, I don't care if you believe me or not, which she did. You know, well, do you ever see this movie called The Entity with Barbara Hershey? I don't think so. It was a horror movie where mm -hmm. she just gets possessed at night by this demon. And she spends most of the movie trying to convince everybody else that this is actually happening and nobody believes her. And then in the last part of the movie, I don't want to spoil it, but let's just say she wins the argument. But I, I always think that trope works for movies and TV where it's like this happened and nobody's like, no way, stop it. You sound crazy. But then they almost have to convince the person. Halloween. One of the reasons Halloween, the original great horror movie was so good is there's that stretch where she just doesn't believe that, you know, the boogeyman is in her neighborhood. And, and really until she well, walks over to the other person's house and sees all the dead bodies, then she's like, oh shit, this is happening. But that's usually the foundation of a lot of good horror movies is there's this malevolent force and our hero doesn't believe in it yet, or nobody believes our hero. Well, so in this case, you're saying if this was a movie, she is the hero. She's the hero and she couldn't get anybody to believe her. But of course, nothing bad happens. The plane just lands in Orlando. But then we so, follow, we follow the lady. She goes back home and then maybe somebody delivers the mail and she's wondering if that's real. It's definitely the making of a good TV show. I think it's well, like an Apple Plus show. Not quite if, a Netflix show. What if, what if they're just... You know, we, we're, we've started creating these unreal beings and we're slowly trying to kind of move them into society. I mean, he's not necessarily bad. Maybe he's only unreal. That's the only downside.
I don't know. I just want, I want to know where she sat on the plane. And I want to know the, what the people around here, who they are. I, would, I, I think I'd be very, I want, I'd yeah, like it does to get feel a, like there should be more I, coverage of this. Well, because now there's, I think this is unreal. I think this is probably untrue, but the, 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 the urban legend that's already kind of come up is that she's just gone. You can't find this woman. She's just gone. She's just disappeared. No one knows who she is. You never see her name anywhere. You know, it was in all these in Daily Mail and all these different places. They never say who she was. Like, uh, I, 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 we, I, I, I want to know what this person believes she saw. I just watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 one, the good one with Donald Sutherland. Okay. And that is a great, like the Brooke Adams character, the lead actress in it. She, it starts out, it's hilarious. She goes, she comes home. She's got like this handsome boyfriend she lives with and he's watching the Warriors game with his headphones on for some reason and getting all excited because the Warriors have a chance to make the playoffs and whatever. And he's just like, seems like a normal guy. And she brought this plant home that she found. She's like, I found this such, it's such a unique plant puts it next to his bed in a, in a pot. And next day he wakes up and he's cleaning up the plant and he doesn't have a personality anymore. And she's like, Jeffrey, where are you going? And he, and he just, he's like, I, I have a meeting and goes out and she just sees him kind of walk away. She watches out the window. There's a dumpster truck that comes and he puts his bag in the dumpster truck. All this dust comes up. And that's how the movie starts. And she's like, that's weird. And then for the next 45 minutes, she tries to explain to some, like something's going on. People are changing. People are different. It's a fucking great movie. Like for a 70s movie, that one I think really holds up. I love shit like this though. I actually don't think we have enough of this stuff. Like were you an yeah. X-Files guy? You know, I, I, I never really watched it. I, I never really I, did I, either. I, and I, I, I don't know I, if I missed out. I remember I had to review the film and I had to, and I, and of course it was on, it, you know, that was how, you know, how it was then. It's like, you knew about these things, even if you didn't watch it. Like yeah. I knew all the characters, I knew all the premises. I know they went and dealt with a chupacabra at some point. I feel, you know, uh, there, there's just, sometimes it was easy to know about something without having to actually experience the depth of it. Um, but now we have more, I mean, way more anecdotes and incidents, quote unquote, where like, what happened here? What happened here? What's this weird video of this giant light that streams down and nobody can explain? It feels like this we're in like the golden era of this stuff now. Uh, we're in the golden era? When, when will the golden era end? Of just sightings and yeah. weird shit. Things, hmm. things are getting weirder. I don't know. Maybe we well, just have better I mean, ways to document it. Obviously, this woman on the plane, if there's not for camera phones, this isn't a very interesting story. Right. We wouldn't even you know say about like, it. You, or if somebody said, well, like maybe Carrot Top would go on if he was actually on the plane, as he claims he was, he would have went on like the Tonight Show and he'd be like, oh, this funny thing happened. There was a woman on the plane and and she believed that uh, she saw somebody who wasn't a person or whatever, you know, and then it would be like, oh, but when you see this, it's like, well, it's, it, you know, your initial reaction is just like, oh, of course she's crazy. Maybe she is, but I, I don't know. There, there's something different about this one. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for the second account, not, uh, not the second account, the second event. I, I just, I, I just had this weird suspicion. This was going to become the thing. People claiming they're seeing unreal. We need people. a Twitter account that just follows this lady and updates us or maybe a threads no, account. Just, 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 oh, you're on threads. That's right. How is, <laughs> Barely. 
How, how is it? It's a mess. Because you don't control who's on your main screen. So it's just, you go on there and it's just all these people you never wanted to follow. And it's like, why are these people in my life? So until they fix that, I can't get into it. I got to say, I find it, I just think this is so hilarious. To me, these people going from Twitter to threads, it reminds me, it'd be like if somebody was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I got really involved with Scientology and it really screwed my life up. But you know what? I found a way out. I'm going to start selling Amway. It's like, it's like, why, why would somebody have this desire to, to see like, I need to replicate the experience of Twitter from 10 years. I just, it's just crazy. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I mean, who knows? You know, I remember we did a podcast once and you convinced me to join Twitter in 2009. Uh, yeah. I can't, or 10,010, whenever I did, you were like, oh, here's all the reasons. Here's how you do it. You know, it's kind of fun or whatever. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do it with this one. I don't think so. If I have to, for some reason, I don't know what that would be, but then I will. But I, I feel like I've, I've, I've put my time in. They made it real easy to sign up and use your Instagram. And the only yeah. reason I signed up was, I was like, well, I'd rather I had my username than somebody else if this becomes a thing. But that seems to be most of these social media apps now where they start to get a tiny bit of momentum. It's like, you better sign up, better get in there. It could become a thing. Like I, like I have a Be Real account that I don't think I've used since I've signed up from a year ago. I don't think Be Real became a thing, but I got an account just in case. Well, I mean, so, now it's, I mean, if, if, if a whole bunch of these things or even just one other one, if like three threads works or whatever, it's just like one more thing that's going to bifurcate and polarize the country that a certain kind of person will be on one application and a certain kind of person will be on the other platform and they will further have absolutely no relationship with each other while having extremely strong ideas about what the other person must think. Like, it's just, it's not, it's. I mean, the thing about Twitter is, is like it was kind of like the only place where all these lunatics had to sort of interact, you know, and uh, uh, it, now it'll be like, well, we can keep them apart, I guess. And it's just I, uh, I, I don't know. It just uh, it doesn't seem like a doesn't seem like a great step forward for society. Here's my last thing for you. Um obviously getting older and I used to have this incredible memory for basically everything, which is starting to fade a little bit, but I can still remember certain things like all the NBA shit for some reason hasn't faded, but I could have friends say to me, remember that dinner we had in 2008 in Orlando? And I'm like, I kind of don't, I remember like bits and pieces of it, but not really. I had this thing happen yesterday. I read this piece by Seth Wickersham and Don Vanatta about Roger Goodell and the emails. The, which was, the, the John Elway trade, right? The idea that the yeah. Raiders, yeah, okay. So in that piece Actually, was about how Al Davis was, felt like, felt like uh, they blocked him from getting John Elway because he was the renegade franchise. And I was like, oh my God. And then a couple people in my life pointed out that we did a 30 for 30 in 2013 Mm -hmm. Elway to Marino, <laughs> where we covered this story. So I was rediscovering this story 10 years later because I had forgotten it. And I, and I was thinking like, on the one hand, that's kind of scary that I didn't remember this documentary covering this that I gave notes on. And on the other hand, I was like, maybe this is a new frontier for me where I'm just rediscovering these things that I already knew where I'm like, whoa, it's like short-term memory guy with Tom Hanks on SNL. 
This so it'll be less, some version of that for me, where every once in a while I'll find out, like, oh my God, Dominique Wilkins was drafted by Utah. That's crazy. But he, even though I already knew that and probably wrote about it in my book, so I don't know. I'm but, I'm, try, I'm trying no, to come I mean, up with a yeah, way to justify well, memory loss uh, being fun. Oh, it could be like, uh, okay. You know, you talked about showing your kids cheers. Okay. Let's say I could give you a pill that you would swallow and you would forget everything about cheers and you could rewatch it for the first time again. That'd be or, great. Or, or, or like, or, or some, like some even, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, you, I, I know you like Peter Gabriel. Like I could remove your relationship to Peter <laughs> Gabriel, Peter and then Gabriel, you, and then you could like go back and listen to the Soul Record, and it'd be the first. Yeah, it would be like the first time because you know I, I it's it's uh or like or things, especially things that become like, like super canonical. Okay, like Nirvana's Nevermind or whatever. Wouldn't it be interesting to actually feel like you're hearing all those songs with absolutely no relationship to what they mean to the world or to other people or your own life or or how often you've heard them? Like it would be like like uh, the first time you could do it. I do think it, it would be great if we could consciously have memory loss about very specific things. You know, um, or, so inten it, intentional memory loss. This sounds like yes. a Black Mirror episode. It absolutely. seems like it would be. Yes. Um, now there would be there, there, you know, say for in the Peter Gabriel example, you would need someone then to come to you and say, like, hey, you got to listen to this guy, Peter Gabriel, because otherwise you'd have. Uh, you know, you'd have no idea. And of course, what would probably happen is because you're a different person now, it would not seem the way it did before. I think a lot of this would be, uh, uh, you know, probably no question. Dis disenchanting, you know. Um, and then, of course, and then people would probably start doing it with people. Like, I want to meet this person again for the first time. And then I suppose it would, if it was a Black Mirror episode, it would be like a marriage counselor who, when he is dealing with a couple who seems destined for divorce, he would say, I'm going to allow you to re-meet each other. Uh, and, you know, by taking this drug, you'll have no knowledge of each other. And then you can meet again. And then everything kind of becomes Escape the Pina Colada song. Where, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't know you like, didn't know you like fucking in the sand or whatever. I didn't know you liked to, you know, it's like didn't hated yoga. Um, it would, it would, it would be quite the thing to sort of be able to just, I mean, now that we're talking about it, I've never thought of this until you brought it up, but like, it would be pretty amazing if there are things from my life I could completely forget about, not because they're dark, terrible memories, but because I want to see what it's like to, to have to that feeling again, them. like. Oh, like if I could forget what mashed potatoes taste like or something like, wouldn't that be incredible? It's like, you have no idea what's this going to be like. And then, Oh, there it is. It's in, you know, um, uh, food I, uh, would be good. Yeah. Food yeah. is a good one for that. If you could take, like you could re-meet Chris Ryan. But that, like, who's yes. this guy? Oh my yeah. God. I love this guy. Well, but now, but now I'd be missing, I would be meeting old Chris Ryan. I can't re-experience missing the, you know, the original Chris Ryan. Original like, cigarette smoking yeah, Chris yeah, Ryan. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that was a, a totally different guy. And boy, now that could be kind of scary because would, is, you, you, if you did this, not with necessarily Chris, but with lots of other people, you'd, you'd suddenly figure out if your relationships are based on 
the actual affinity between the two people or your shared history. Yeah. Circumstance and shared history. Like, you know, uh, like, uh, it, it would be, it would be pretty disturbing to do that because you're like, oh, I, I can't wait to, to meet my best friend again and then find out you hate them. Well, wh- how about with spouses? What uh, percentage yes. of people could, you could remove all the shared history and they could meet right away? Would they still like each other? I feel like I would still like my wife. Well, I feel like I would like my wife too, but it's yeah. a hard, it's like, but you know, some people a, might be like, whoa, this person sucks. What am I doing? Uh, well, I, well, also, I mean, that you talk about a bunch of years passing, you really are a different person. I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of amazed by people who like, like married their high school sweetheart or whatever. I mean, you change so much as a person from 20 to 30. Yes. It's just incredible to me that, that, you know, I, I, uh, I, I had, you know, and then every decade of being you obviously you change the most from like zero to 10, obviously. And then you change a lot from 10 to 20 and you still change a bit from 20 to 30 and 30 to 40. The change is meaningful, but it's more like a tweak. And then 40 to 50 and 50 to 60 and 60 to 70, that gets less and less and less. Like, you know, it would, it's, it's hard to imagine like it's hard for 30 year old me to imagine liking 20 year old me, for example. I think 30 year old me would have hated 20 year old me. Interesting. What would you have hated? Almost everything. But of course I'm like 51 now. <laughs> and I think 51 year old me kind of hates 50 year old me. <laughs> 51, actually 51 year old me hates 51 year old me. So I guess I'd be a bad example of this, but like, uh, um, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Now, now I'm going to be, now you really got me going on. Now I'm just going to, I'm just going to constantly think about ways to misremember things, you know, for, well, for, for, you know, I think it's going to keep happening to me. It was, it was an interesting experience to move because you find stuff in boxes or things you bought or, you know, be like, what was that? When did, or did I find like a press pass to something I went to in like 2005? I'm like, what happened to that? I don't even remember. Well, what happened at that ESPYs? I, I literally can't remember anything of it. I think it's almost like your brain is a nightclub and you could just have too many people in the nightclub and then some stuff has to get pushed out. Well, and some of that stuff yeah. is the memories, right? Like how many memories can you keep in your brain? Well, because we just, you know, like we just keep adding stuff. There's more, yeah. like there's you know, more sports, more musicians, more films, more political things, more history. It, uh, it's just, it's like I'm running out of RAM or whatever. It's like you just, you just, you just, I had get- this one during the pandemic. I was rewatching a couple challenge seasons and I had no memory of anything that happened on the season. And these were seasons I watched, you know, and it could be the same thing for like a real world or basically I feel like any reality just goes, you, you consume it and it's almost like food that you digest and it just leaves your body. Well, yeah, I mean, like you, but you, you go into like watching the challenge with the idea that it's disposable. You're like, barely I, watching it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll be reading, say like a, like a, a real good book or something, or, you know, I'll be like, I'll be kind of like, remember this shit. Like I'm reading a paragraph and I'll be like, rem- I remember I read that book Sapiens and there are sections in that book where I'd be like, remember this shit. Like, do not fucking forget this. And like two days later, it's gone. Um, it's even weirder though, when it's your own life, like you talk about like, you, uh, uh, it, it's, it disturbs me when I see a picture from a party that I was at and I don't remember it. 
Like, cause that's like, you know, the size of your reality is just the size of your memory. So like, if, if you lose parts of your own life, you're losing that part of reality. I, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, if, if I like found out that I had was, you know, had was getting out al like Alzheimer's or something, I just, I, I, I feel like before I even experienced the, the, the illness, the fear of that would be so great to me because it's just like, like I, I, I try to remember everything and I feel like I have an okay memory, but it's, it, it's, 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 of course it's going, you know, uh, things with your kids are sometimes like this, you know, it's like you, like you're, you're like, how can I forget some of the experiences I had when my kids were babies? Cause I wasn't thinking about anything else during that time. That's all I was thinking about. And yet somebody will say like, Oh, say what age did your kids start walking? And I'll be like, well, uh, I can picture it. Uh, it was like about, was it not? No, couldn't admit. Like I just, I suddenly, I can't remember these things that are central to my life. You know, uh, it's, you know, I think you remember, you remember the memory. And that's not the memory. It's your it's your memory of the memory. Yes. And then eventually it's a memory of the memory of the memory. And then it just kind of keeps going that way. It's yeah, that's that's how I mean, like anytime someone tell like you tell a story, if I if I asked you, like, what's the best story of your life from junior high? OK, you'd probably remember a story you've told before, but all you're really remembering is the last time you told the story. That's why they always say when couples break up, like after a long marriage or whatever, um, uh, one of the things, one of the losses the many losses of that is you actually lose memory because you realize how many of memory, how much of your memory it's was shared. shared memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you'll be like, oh, we were putting the Christmas tree up. And it was like, oh yeah, that was the same year that like, uh, you know, they were, we, we went to this, watch Star Trek all night or like between the two of you, you're able to sort of put together what happened. And when that person's gone, the fragments completely dissolve almost like a dream where it's like, you see it leaving your head. You know? I always did this with my parents because my parents got divorced, you know, when I was nine. And my mom will tell a story sometimes and I'll be like, that's like when you were a kid, this happened. And I'm like, eh. so then I go to my dad and then he remembers a story. It's like half the story, but then half of it is another story that merged into the story my mom's telling. So that's another thing. You don't have that checks and balances person with you if in a divorce or any sort of a split up. I'm like, no, no, that's not what happened. That was that was Christmas the next year. You're, but if you don't have that checks and balance persons, all those stories end up just merging into this new version of a story that didn't actually totally happen. Yeah. And you're like your parents divorced when you were nine. Okay. So my dad had a stroke when I was nine and yeah. um, I have some memories around that, that I mean, they're as vivid and clear as if they had happened to me last week. It's really weird that my son is now nine because I realized that, uh, that he is now at an age where things that happen to him will not just be ephemeral. He may remember for his life, right. you know, and it's, it's really, it's, it's strange that sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll be watching him do something and I'll be thinking to myself, it's like, well, in all likelihood, this is something he'll do and it'll just be gone. But like, this could also be something that over time, because he happens to remember it, he will build 
into like a defining part of how he thinks about his life. You know, that's, it's just, it's, it's amazing in a way and, and weird and scary. Yeah. Nine and 10 great ages for boys. All right. We got sufficiently weird on this podcast. Um, anything you got any plugs, anything you're working on, anything you want to talk about before we go? Oh, well, um, I'm finishing up a book that'll probably come out next year. Um, uh, they made Downtown Owl into a movie, but I don't really know what's going on with it. it, what? it, it yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it 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 they it played at Tribeca. Um, it's not really like my book. I mean, it plot wise it is, but it's very different. So Good you just sold the rights, and then the people made it. I sold the rights thirteen years ago. <laughs> it just finally happened. Yeah. Wow. Um, but uh, I. So that that exists, I guess. But it's 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 was it was a strange experience watching it. It was you know it's like the people who made it they they're great people and they tried so hard to do a good job. They just devoted their life for it for all these years, um, you know. And like you know, and Ed Harris is in it and stuff. It's like there's real people in it. But uh, Ed it was Harris, very, it, yeah. Um, Vanessa Hudgens it, is in it. Yeah, this is yeah. like a real movie. No, it it is. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was you know. It is. Okay. It's, it's a, you know, um, but I had no, I had, I had no, I had, I didn't play any role in it at all. Like, you know, and I was Idris like, Elba as Chuck Klosterman. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but that exists now. So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, it just, it's, it was, it was, it's surprising that, that it happened at all, I guess. Um, and, but no, I guess I got nothing. There's nothing that I have to promote. All right. No. Um, well, this summer at some point, I'm going to do my annual, um, phone call to try to talk you into a podcast you'll never do. I do have a really good idea for you for a podcast. Well, good luck. And then, and then you won't yeah. do it. Um, yeah. all right. Chuck Klosterman. Great to see you as always. Enjoy the, uh, rest of the summer. You bet. All right. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Chuck. Thanks to Kyle Creighton for producing. Thanks to Steve Cerruti. As well, if you want to hear Women's World Cup stuff, we have a bunch of great soccer podcasts. Just go to theringer.com and go look at all the podcasts we have. And we have something for everybody. I will see you uh, in August. Stay safe. Enjoy July. Enjoy the summer. I'll see you next month.